Welcome to the All Nations Aurora podcast, where you will find family, discover purpose, and change the world. We're so glad you're here. And wherever you're listening from, we believe that God will speak directly to your life through this message. How many of you are glad to be in the house of the Lord today? Is it just me? Am I alone? We're going to get right into it. We're in a series called It um, Is Written. It Is Written. So first test, let me see those physical paper. Let me see who paper Bible saved today. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Now, some of you weren't here last week. At the conclusion of, of last Sunday, I challenged us in this month of July that we bring our physical Bibles to church every Sunday in this month because we're talking about this here Bible of ours, and we're trying to get to know it a little bit better. Um, so if you didn't bring it this week, that's okay. We still got some more weeks to go. Uh, show up with your, and be paper Bible saved with the rest of us uh, during, this, during this season or series. And, and some of you might be saying like, man, um, like what's the big deal? Everybody knows you're supposed to read your Bible. Um, I wish that were true. Uh, there's this organization called the... Um, American Institute of the Bible, and every year they put out a report called the State of the Bible. And uh, last year's report, um, some interesting statistics came came from it. It says that only 39% of Americans read their Bibles multiple times a year. Now, Maybe the more alarming part of this particular stat is that it's actually down. Pre-pandemic, it was 50%. So we came down 11 percentage points coming out of the pandemic. In a time where our world was turned upside down, you would think people would lean in more, but it actually caused a greater divide. More alarming, uh, only 10% of Americans read their Bible daily. Even though the Lord referred to this as our daily bread, only 10% read their Bibles on a daily basis. And and probably the one that that stung the most from this report, um, 26 million Americans close their Bible and don't read it at all. That means that they were reading it But now the difference between the reports pre-pandemic and post-pandemic say that 26 million Americans said bye-bye to this Bible. The the researchers in this report said, quote, what we discovered was startling, disheartening, and disruptive. That's the state, that's the state of the Bible. And as a pastor, really hurts, had me thinking like, I wonder how many people in this room are only reading their Bibles a few times a year. I wonder how many people in this room are watching or listening online actually read their Bibles daily. And it worries me because of how valuable our Bibles are, or at least they, they should be. That's why the the subtitle of of this series is that this Bible of ours, it it almost should serve like an anchor. 
or maybe a compass, but it should be an integral part of not just our Sunday lives, but our everyday lives. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew 7 and 24. Let's, let's, let's find out why this is important together. Matthew 7, 24. Breezy, I'm going to go slow because I know you said I'll be going too fast with the scriptures. Matthew 7 and 24. My particular version is in LT, but whatever version you have is fine. It's also up on the screen as well for those of you who need to see it that way. If you got it, say, I got it. If you need more time, say, hold up. All right. Matthew 7 and 24. Matthew 7 and 24. Real simple verse, but something that we need to let take up residence in our hearts. Are you ready? Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise. It's a simple, simple sentence. <laughs> These teachings in this Bible are where you gain wisdom. It's like a person who builds a house on solid rock. So when you open up this Bible and when you read it and when you pray through it and when you ask God to reveal it to you and help you to understand it, you become wise. So if this is where wisdom lies, how come this lies in a drawer that we never open? We're going to change that with, with this series. And, and in particular, I'll tell you, the name of today's message is Book Smarts. Because I think we need to, I think, we, I think one of the, the problems that, that's creating distance between us and our Bibles is a little intimidation. It seems overwhelming, seems a little lofty, seems a little hard to, to digest, and so... We don't really go to it as often as we should, but we're going to change that with today's message. And by the time we finish, we're all going to be a little bit smarter about this book. It's going to be a little less intimidation about this book, and it's going to cause us to desire this book. Can you join me as we pray before we dive in? Heavenly Father, we honor you this morning. We love you because you first loved us. And the truth of the matter is you've already done more for us than we can ever repay you for. But in this moment, we open up our hearts and our minds to receive a word from you. Father, I remove myself from the equation so that your perfect will can be done right here and right now. Speak to us, your people. Communicate your truth to us and so that it transforms us, changes our lives completely and forever. We give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Book smarts. There's a story. Two young boys. Uh, it was a rainy summer day. They really wanted to go outside and, and play and have some fun outdoors, but the weather prevented them from doing so. So they elected to put together a puzzle. Had like 500 pieces. And so they dumped all the pieces out on the table and they spread it out and they began to try to put the puzzle together. But they were struggling. So many pieces. 
And if, you, if you've ever seen a puzzle like this, you know, some of those pieces can be really small and they got barely any color on it. So trying to figure out where each piece fits perfectly can become a chore. Then one of them had a light bulb go off. They said, hey, go get the box with the picture on it so we can see what it is that we're trying to build. And so one of them went to go get the box and they turned it over and they saw that it was a picture of a king and all his courtiers all around him. And so when the second child saw the picture on the box, he said, I got it. The king is in the middle. And as long as we put the king in the middle, everything else that we build outside from that king will fit perfectly. Isn't that a picture of what our lives should be? Sometimes it just feels like we're scattered all over the place trying to figure out how to live this life. Well, the key is to keep the king in the middle and build out from there. It's also a picture of the church. We have all these strategies and ideas about how to build the church, but I I want you to rest assured that Ty and I are focused on putting the king in the middle of this church and building out from there. If you decide within yourself, this is the whole sermon right here, to keep the king in the middle of your life, your life will improve. Does that mean your life will be perfect? No, but you will no longer be going through this life in your own strength. When you put the king in the middle and you build out from there. So it's important for us. This is a tool for us to keep the king in the middle of our lives. He has spoken to us through his word. He speaks through many mediums. But the number one way that God speaks into your situation is through his word. That's why he left it here as a gift for you. So you didn't have to go from day to day trying to figure out how this life is supposed to go. He left you some help. So let's start with some basics. Where do we get the word Bible from? Well, the Greek translation of the word Bible is biblos, and biblos simply means book. Where this word came from was a region of the world that's known today as Lebanon, but back then the name of the area was Byblos, and they were the number one importers of papyrus, and papyrus is where we get paper. So they were the place where people went to to get stuff created into book, manuscript format. So that's how we got the name Bible. It simply means book. But this isn't just any old book. I really want us to understand that this isn't just any old book. (laughs) This is the most purchased book in history. It's the most translated book in history. It's a holy book. Now, if I'm going to be theologically correct, it's not a book. It's actually a library. 
that contains many books in one volume. So although we refer to it as a book, it's really not a book. This is a library for us to consume throughout our days, our weeks, and our months. And a lot of people spend a lot of energy trying to discredit this book. And it hasn't worked yet. They put a lot of big words together, but the facts just don't line up. That's why it's still the number one selling book. Thousands of years after Jesus gave his life. It's still the one that we lean on the most. Here's a little apologetic about the book. This book, that's not a book, was written over, listen, a 1,600-year period. So just imagine the story of your life. The first chapter was written 1,600 years ago, and different people put in their parts all the way up into two today. Not only was it written over a 1,600-year period, but the writers were in different locations, over 12 different countries. Not only that, but over three different continents. They all told the same story. What's not on the screen is that it involves three different languages. And yet they all tell the same story. That's why this Bible of ours can't be disproven because it's impossible for all of those variables and all those factors to point in the same direction. Heck, we can't even get all y'all to give. You know how hard it is to get a group of people to do one thing? Sixteen hundred years, twelve different countries, three different continents, three different languages, over 40 different writers. One story. That's your Bible. Come on, we can, we, can, we, can, we, can, we can extrapolate it a little bit further. If we look at the different backgrounds of those 40 writers, they were poets, prophets, princes, kings, sailors, soldiers, attorneys, doctors, farmers, scholars, shepherds, priests, historians, fishermen, tax collectors, and businessmen, all telling the same story. They ain't even got the same education level. They don't have the same life experiences, but they got the same story. Let's look at where they were writing from. They wrote from caves. They wrote from ships. They wrote from homes. They wrote from palaces. They wrote from prisons. They wrote from deserts. And no matter where they were spread out and where they were writing from, they were telling the same story. We can't even get all y'all to serve. But all these people lined up together to tell the same story? That should blow your mind just a little bit. And although there were 40 writers, there was only one author. We got to be clear about that. 40 different writers. But there was one author. 
to this story. That's why it's one story. Throughout all those millennia, throughout all those countries, throughout all those continents, throughout all those languages, it's because there was only one author. That's God. God is the author of your Bible. God is the one who breathed life into the pages of this Bible. And I'll prove it by using the Bible. 2 Timothy 3 and 16. 2 Timothy 3 and 16 is where we will find evidence. 2 Timothy 3 and 16 reads, All Scripture is inspired by God. All of it. Every word in here is inspired by God and is useful to teach us, here's the hard part, what is true, here it is, and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. This is why we need to open our Bibles. Not to just find out what's what's true and what's good and what's great and what's popping, We also need to know what's wrong. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. That's why we need to open our Bibles. It corrects us when we're wrong. Nobody really likes correction, but we need it. It corrects us when we're wrong. And it teaches us how to do right. So many of us are trying to do right apart from him. And that's why we end up not doing right because we're not following his teachings. We're letting the culture talk to us more than the Christ. And it leaves us feeling empty and unfulfilled because we haven't gone to the right source to learn how to do what is right. Let's take, a, let's take a look at our Bibles. You may want to look at your table of contents for this next part. And this is one of them Sundays, you might want to take notes. You might want to get your phone out, screenshot some stuff, because I'm going to give you the blueprint of your Bible to get rid of your intimidation, and to get rid of your fear and to increase your desire for what the Lord has to say. So we'll start by taking a look at your Old Testament because, again, this is not a book, it's a library. And some of us open the Bible and think, and it's okay if you do because it, it's natural to think so, that you're re- like Genesis is, is where the story begins and Revelation is where the story ends, and it's not actually the case. Uh, uh, these, these, these Bibles are canonized. That's a big theological word in a specific way. Okay. So the first five books of your Old Testament are called the law. The Jewish word for it is the Pentateuch. It starts with Genesis and it goes to Deuteronomy. It's called the law. So it starts with the creation story and some of the heroes of the faith like Abraham and Moses. And you know, all the things that they went through from Abraham going out from his family and God promised making a covenant with him that he would have uh, uh, um, an inheritance 
and he would have children the same as the grain of salt on the, on the ground. And they were in the desert. So that's a lot of people. And then you get, you get to Moses and, and God using him to deliver his people. And so it goes all the way, the law, the first five books of the Bible, all the way up into the point where the children of Israel were about to enter into the promised land. First five books are the law. That's the first category in your book, the Bible, the library of the holy teachings. The next category is the historical books. The historical books. And that is 12 books in total. This is one of my favorite areas because I just like history in general. And so when you read these books of the Bible, you're learning the history of what happened with the children of Israel from the time that they entered the promised land forward. This actually goes all the way to Esther. And chronologically speaking, think about calendar. Esther is actually historically, chronologically speaking, the end of the Old Testament. That's how the story ends on the calendar. Are you with me? Okay. So you have the historical books, each part of the journey from the time that they uh, go into the promised land to the time that they go into captivity. And it's a lot in there. Don't be intimidated when you read these. Be curious. Remember what the goal is. The goal is to put the king at the center. And the king, fun fact, doesn't show up in Matthew. The king is present from Genesis through Revelation. So there are several occurrences in the Old Testament, some of which are in the historical records, where Jesus shows up. And we call that a theophany, an appearance of Jesus to man in the Old Testament. And there are several. Who do you think that fourth person was in the furnace with uh, uh, the three Hebrew boys? It was Jesus. There are several encounters where they call him the angel of the Lord or, or, or different names or no name at all. But there's an appearance of a heavenly being. And in a lot of instances, it's Jesus. So I want you to be clear. Jesus didn't come on the scene in the manger. Right in the beginning of Genesis, it says the word was with God and the word is God. That word, word means Jesus. He was there from Genesis and the whole book, which I'll talk about in a second. The whole book of Revelation is about him too. So we start with the law, then we move to the historical books, and then the next category is the poetical books. The poetical books. It's the Psalms, it's Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And, and, and again, these are not in chronological order. What you could do, which is what I do, is you could buy a chronological Bible. I read that on a regular basis. And it, it's actually reorganized 
chronologically from start to finish. And if you get one, you'll notice like some of the Psalms are inserted throughout the historical books because those Psalms were written out throughout different parts of the history of the children of Israel. Are you with me? So after we get through the poetical books, the last group of books that we have are the prophetical books, the books that came via the prophets. This is another instance where each of these prophets that we'll talk about in a second, they were alive during different parts of the historical section of the Bible. So their life will be inserted throughout the historical Bible, excuse me, throughout the historical books as well if you were reading the Bible chronologically. But in this, in our Bibles, they have their own section. There are 17 um, uh, books in total, but even those books are broken down into two categories. The first one being the major prophets. The major prophets. And there is um, five of those from Isaiah to Daniel. Then the second group is called the minor prophets. And that's from Hosea to Malachi. Now you may hear the words major and minor and think like this group was more powerful than the other. That's not the case at all. The first group is called the major prophets was because of the length of their writings. The next group is called the minor prophets because they were much shorter. Some of them were only two or three pages long. So major and minor simply has to do with the length of the writings that they left us. Are you with me? Okay. So that's how our Bible Old Testament ends. And what happens next is a 400 year period of silence. 400 year period of silence. And during that silence, a few things take place. Um, the children of Israel come out of captivity, um, but there's also a Greek conquest. And in, in your history class growing up, you would have heard of a person by the name of Alexander the Great. And that's when his reign took place. And then after that, there was a Roman conquest. And in the Roman conquest is where we find Jesus in a manger because the children of Israel are under Roman rule at that point. Are you with me still? So after that 400 year period of silence, we now move into what our Bible calls the New Testament. And the New Testament starts, the first section is what's called the Gospels. And the word gospel simply means good news. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first three of those four, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are what's known as the synoptic gospels. They were written kind of close together, and they told the same story from different vantage points, and they were targeted to different audiences. So when you're reading your Bible, it's not like you're reading the same thing over and over. You're getting different vantage points of the same story. The book of John was written much later, way later than the first three, and that's why a good chunk of John you do not see in the first three, because John was able to see the first three, and he was able to take what he didn't see and give his first-person account, because this is the same John that was a disciple of Jesus, and give a more personal account of what Jesus did while he was on the earth. Are you with me? After you get done with the Gospels, you move on to what's called the Acts of the Apostles. In your Bible, it might just say Acts, but the official name is 
the Acts of the Apostles. This serves as the history book for the new covenant, the church that was established after Jesus's work on the cross. So much like the Old Testament books that were historical, this book of Acts serves as the history of the first church. Are you with me? Now, during, chronologically speaking, the time of Acts, churches were being planted. And as these churches were being planted, the church planters or the apostles of that time that were planting these churches started writing letters to these churches to edify them and build them up. And those letters are the next section, what we call the epistles. It's just a fancy word for letters. It's 21 of them in total. 13 of those 21 were written by Paul. And the rest were written by various other writers like John and Peter and James and Jude and so on. That is what we call the epistles. Those are the letters to the church. And you got to understand everything from Acts and into the epistles is what we are modeling ourselves after today. Because we are a part of this new covenant that came about after the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So this is where we get our blueprints for how we are trying to do his work in the earth to this very day. And after the epistles is the very last book, book number 66. It's called Revelation. There is no S. There's only one revelation. It's not, we're not trying to figure out multiple things. <laughs> there is one revelation, and the revelation is our soon coming king. And that's how our Bible plays out. It's important that you understand these different categories to kind of, again, lessen the intimidation. <laughs> these, the, the, the order of our Bible is not random. Several different categories that we can embrace, that we can learn from, and that we can talk to. Now I want to tell you about the plot of the Bible, because every book has a plot. And there's a plot in our Bible as well, and I'm going to take you through it step by step. Really, it serves as, as a mirror, the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's almost like two reflections looking at each other. And I'm going to walk you through each step. So we start with Genesis 1 and 2, and that's God and righteous man in paradise. That's where the creation story begins. Everything was perfect. Wasn't no worries. Wasn't no problems. Wasn't no hateration. Everything was everything. It was lovely. Like Adam didn't even have to go and pull out the holes and water nothing. God set it up to where the ground just like watered itself. Like, like only a few of us know like the drudgery of going out and trying to keep the grass from turning yellow in the sun. Adam ain't have to worry about that. God had it covered. Everything was perfect until Genesis 3. And that's when Satan and sin entered the picture. And what that word sin means is distance. 
When Satan and sin entered the picture, it caused distance between us and our maker, our heavenly father. And then in Genesis 6, the next part of the plot is that the world is judged and destroyed. We know brother Noah came on the scene and God saved him and his family, but he destroyed everybody and everything else because things had gone so bad. I mean, they were wilding. I mean, angels having uh, kids with humans and sin was just going crazy. God said in his Bible, I regret making these jokers. Now, that's strong. When God said, I regret you. I'm going to erase you. And so uh, that takes place during uh, Genesis 6 and 9. And then in Genesis 10, we move to what they tried to establish known as a one world government system. That's where we find the story of the Tower of Babel. So all these people got together, they spoke the same language, and they was like, you know what, instead of depending on God, we're going to build a tower to go up to his throne, and we're going to be like him. That sounds familiar. And so God was like, nah, bruh. And what he did, according to our Bible, was he confused their language. And so they could no longer communicate because they, was, they were doing pretty good. They were building that thing. It was coming together. I mean, they was getting on up there. And God was like, look at these. He just like threw some confusion at them. And all of a sudden, they had different languages. And they know what they were saying to each other. And they were thoroughly confused because God confused them. And so instead of allowing them to kind of do their own thing, what he did when he gave them different languages is different nations started to develop. And so then he established his own government through the 12 tribes of Israel. And this particular people group became his holy people. And the structure that they used to govern themselves was the 12 tribes that God established. And that whole story plays out from Genesis through Malachi, the 12 tribes, how they were established and how they lived their lives. And it concludes in our Bibles with the book of Malachi. And then what happens is that the plan that God had from the beginning takes place and Jesus Christ shows up because everything that they tried didn't work. They tried to build the tower. That didn't work. And even when God established the 12 tribes and all of the things that they put together and orchestrated and legislated didn't work. They have a whole book. You, you, in your Bible, you have a whole book of rules where God gave them a holy. It wasn't just 10 commandments, y'all. It was hundreds. <laughs> and they struggled to keep up with this. They would do good, do bad, do good, do bad, do good, do bad. So everything that they tried on their own failed. Why? Because it was external. There was no heart work. They were trying to keep rules external to please God. So God already had a plan established to fix that. And he sent his son, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen. I'm glad somebody caught that. 
He sent his son Jesus to change everything. Because everything in the Old Testament you'll see is about external works. And everything in your New Testament is about the internal works that need to happen in us. In the book of Hebrews, he even said, God said that I will write my letter on their heart. They won't have to memorize it because it will be written on their heart. That's at the end of Hebrews 8 if you want to check it out. That's a promise that those who surrender, those who submit themselves to his teachings, it will be written on their heart. So what happens? Now Jesus Christ comes on the scene. Uh, uh, we read about that whole story and all the, the, the ministry that he did in our Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then what happens is, just like in the Old Testament, when God used um, his providential works to create the 12 tribes, in the New Testament, Jesus used 12 disciples and established the church, the ecclesia that we are now a part of today, and we become his holy people. We are engrafted into the new covenant with him. And then, here it is again, a one-world government system. We learn about this in the book of Revelation, and I think it's already happening right now. I mean, I can't believe that I have to pay inflated prices at Walmart and then ring my own stuff up and then bag my own groceries. I mean, do I work here now? I mean, but AI is everywhere, right? I mean, these are signs that everything's lining up. We can, we can do business locally. We can do business nationally. We can do business internationally at the click of a thumb. I told you, I went, to the, I went to the airport not too long ago, and, and they said, stand right here, sir. I said, okay, all right, all right. <laughs> and they took a picture, and they said, right this way, Mr. McNeely. I'm like, hold on. How you know my name? I ain't gave them no ID. My passport was in my hand. I'm waiting for them to ask me for my passport. But through that picture, they knew me. I'm just saying, the signs are here. It ain't, it, ain't, it, ain't, it ain't off in a distant land like we think. It talks about it in the book of Revelation. And then after that, one world government system is established. Um, also in the book of Revelation, the world is judged and destroyed. But not like in the Old Testament, because in the Old Testament, he did it with water. This time he's going to do it with fire. But even in that, God promised that there's a remnant of his people who will be preserved through it all. And that's a promise. And he's a promise keeping God. And, and the last step is the end of the book of Revelation. And that's when God and redeemed man are together in paradise. Redeemed, not righteous. Righteous is right standing. Redeemed is brought back to him. So the plot is like a mirror image. If you look at this next slide, you'll see that both sides of the mirror correlate. 
The plot of the Bible serves as a mirror. Twelve tribes, twelve disciples, one world. The world's judged and destroyed. Sin and Satan enters, Satan and sin exit. God and righteous man in paradise, and we return back to him. So you can take that from Genesis on up to Malachi, and then you can go from the Gospels down to Revelation. Your Bible plot serves like two reflections looking at each other. This is the whole plot of your Bible. So now that we've talked about the plot, every book has a subject. Every book has a subject. No matter what book you read, there's a, there's a, there's a subject to it. Sometimes we go to this Bible thinking that the subject is us. And a lot of churches create a lot of sermons to make you think that the subject of this Bible is you. And I have to break the news to you as your pastor that the subject of the Bible is Jesus. Now, you should, as we talked about earlier, come to this book to find, because it, it says, when you come here, it'll teach you how to do what is right. It'll show you the areas that are wrong. But that doesn't mean that this book is about you. <laughs> this book is for you. This book is not about you. This book is about Jesus. So every time you open the pages of this book, you should be looking for Jesus. Stop coming to this Bible looking for you. If you keep the king in the center, you'll be able to build out from there. But never lose sight of who Who's in the middle of this? The Bible was not written about you, but it was written for you. John 5 and 39 says, you search the scriptures because you think they give eternal life. That's, that's why we come and we try to find something to make us feel better. We try to find something for, uh, uh, to, to post about our haters. Yes, we do. We try, we try to justify the things that we've been doing through a, a scripture. And that's why this verse says, you search the scripture because you think they give you eternal life. This book doesn't give you eternal life. <laughs> this book is not about you. Jesus, this is, if, if you're reading your Bible, this, this, is in, this scripture is in red. This is Jesus talking. He said, you're going, you going in there trying to find a rule. Trying to, trying, to, trying to be a good Christian, trying to make, you, make, make sure you check all the boxes. He said, fool, this book is about me. I'm standing right here. You talking about... It sounds crazy when you read it, but we do the same thing. Jesus, for those of us who surrendered our lives... His spirit takes up residence in us. And yet we just walk by him every day. And we go try to get an answer on TikTok. We live for other people's quotables and tweets to find hope and satisfaction when the king is in your heart. You walk by him every day. You walk by his word every day trying to live this life 
in your own strength through the words of men instead of depending on the word of God. So never lose sight of the fact that Jesus is the subject of our Bible. So we talked about the overview of the Bible, and I'm almost done. I want to get out your hair and, and let you go on about your day. And we talked about the plot of our Bible, and we talked about the subject of our Bibles. And what's the verb? What's the verb of this book? What's the, what's the action that undergirds everything in this, in this Bible of ours? You might immediately think love. That would be a good, that would be a good answer. That's not the correct answer. But that would be a good answer because love is like the motivation. Love is like the fuel and the energy. But the actual verb that permeates from Genesis through Revelation is generosity. Our God is a giver. And he's gracious with his gifts. He talks about he's given apostles, prophets, and pastors, and teachers, and evangelists. He talks about gifts that he, he gives to men like prophecy, and intercession, and leadership, and the gift of helps. But the most important gift, he gave his son. Jesus gave himself. Gave his life for you. As imperfect as you are. He gave his life for me. As imperfect as I am. And the hope is that in turn, you would give your life back to him. So we don't come in here to sing songs only. We don't come in here to volunteer our time only. We don't come in here to preach sermons or pray. We come in here to give our life back to him. You see the difference? It's a heart posture. That's why Jesus came, because in the Old Testament, everybody was doing stuff externally and no work was happening inside. Some of us are still operating in the old covenant, just doing stuff. But there's no work happening inside. See the difference? This is the, this is the, the surgeon's scalpel. One scripture calls this thing sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's here to do hard work on us if we let it, if we open ourselves to it. If we don't have generosity in us, we don't have the word in us. Let me just make it plain. 
If it's hard for you to give money, if it's hard for you to give time, if it's hard for you to give effort, if it's hard to give, you're missing the point. Come on, we learned this scripture when we were eight and had to do the little Easter play, little, little, little speech. John 3 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believe him shall not perish and have eternal. You, you only had to be saved three minutes and you was handed, you was handed that. That's how important that verse is. It's a reminder. Our God is a giver. And he wants us to give our life back to him. Not John 3, 16, but 1 John 3, 16 says this. We know that real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. That's how we identify that his love is real. He gave up his life for us. And we just kind of scoot on by. We just go from day to day without even a consideration of the blood that he shed. Without any consideration of the fact that he decided to get up off his throne and come to this earth in the first place, knowing how foul you were, knowing how messed up I was, and he still made the decision to give. What an awesome God we serve. You should, you, should, you should just take a moment and breathe that in. Because sometimes we just, we just move through these 24 hours like it's no big deal. Like somebody owe us something. Like we earned these minutes, these seconds, and these hours, and these days. No, somebody had to give for you to receive what you have. I'm going to close with this. I'll be transparent for a second. The message was done, turned in, over with. I was late last night reading my Bible for my own self, for my own devotional time. Had nothing to do with sermon preparation. And then God led me to a passage of scripture that I had to I had to sit my Bible down because it messed me up so bad. Because I wasn't looking for it like the sermon was done. It was already turned into the meeting. It was, it was over. And then he took me to Psalm 19. I'll go slow, Breezy. He took me to Psalm 19, if you want to go with me. And I was reading it. I read it several times and I couldn't stop crying. And I thought I was, I was crying. I thought the tears were based on, on the promise that I was reading. Because in Psalm 19 and 7, it says the instructions of the Lord are perfect. Reviving the soul. 
Some of us don't realize how much our souls need to be revived. That's why we don't open this book. He says the decrees of the Lord are trustworthy. He's trying to show you that you can trust his word. Making wise to simple. There's that wisdom again. Verse 8, the commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. Do you, do you hear what he's saying? His Bible can bring revival to your soul. His Bible can bring joy to your heart. That's why the enemy doesn't want you to open it. That's why he makes you so busy and so distracted. Because he doesn't want that revival in your soul. He doesn't want that joy in your heart. It goes on to say the commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. The devil doesn't want you to have insight for living. Verse 9 says, reverence for the Lord is pure and lasting forever. Where is our reverence for the Lord? Where is it? The laws of the Lord are true, and each one is fair. They are more desirable than gold. Is your Bible to you, you answer this in your own heart, more desirable than gold? Because if not, it should be. It needs to be. They are sweeter than honey, and even honey dripping from the comb. They are a warning to your servant, a great reward. A great reward. You're like, Lord, I need a breakthrough. I need increase. I need healing. Your reward is in here. It's your reward. Does it, does it seem like a reward to you? So I thought I was crying because of these promises. But then I just sat there. Sometimes you got to stop talking so you can hear. And so I was sitting there crying, trying to figure out why I was crying. And he asked me a question I'm going to ask corporately. He said, why don't my people want to know what I have to say? After all I've done. Why don't they want to hear from me? I don't know how you would answer that. But my hope is that you will start to desire. I don't want this to be a discipline. That's old covenant. New covenant is when this becomes a desire of yours. That there's a longing. That there's a thirst, a hunger for his word. And so that's why 
I wanted to take some of the, the, the pressure out of this Bible. I don't want it to be intimidating. I don't want it to feel lofty or pretentious. It's for you. It is a gift to you. And it's life for your very soul. That's why I encourage you to get book smart, to understand how this Bible was put together, what it was for, and how you use it in your everyday life moving forward. Thank you for joining us today. For more ways to stay connected, visit us at allnationsaurora.com. Be sure to subscribe and share this podcast with your family and friends. Thanks for listening. Now go out and change the world.